You're listening to Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hey, everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead, and sitting beside me, for the first time in a hundred and whatever many episodes we've done, is Renee Coronado. How you doing, Renee? Hey, what's up? It's nice to see you in person. It's, it's a little weird. Yeah, you're taller than I expected, and I find it a little intimidating. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> and also sitting with us, we have the one and only Tom Hammond. Tom has over 150 credits on his IMDb page, but he's arguably best known for his collaborations with director Richard Linkletter, including Boyhood, the trilogy of Before Sunrise, Before Sunset and Before Midnight, Bernie, A Scanner Darkly, and the recent Where'd You Go Bernadette. They've collaborated on over 11 films over 25 years. In addition, he has built the fantastic Soundcrafter Studios, which we're sitting in right now. We just got a tour. It's a really impressive place. Thanks for having us here. And uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, Thanks for taking an interest in what we do here. Well, thanks for making some really awesome projects that we can talk about. It's really great. So before you were working with Richard Linkletter, you had a lot of credits working, uh, doing Foley editing. Mm-hmm. So was that in L.A.? or That was in Los Angeles. Yeah. I was mostly working for uh, Dane Davis at Dane Tracks. Oh. And I knew Dane from film school at California Institute of the Arts. So you went to film school together? I went, I went right. And so how did you work your way out to Austin then? Well... My wife, Janice, got a teaching job here at UT. So she was working at the L.A. County Museum of Art, and she was sort of through with being a curator. She wanted to do teaching, so (laughs) she dragged me here. And uh, at first, you know, I I was ready to leave, actually, fully. I'd been sort of pigeonholed into doing just that. And I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of other things that I was interested in. I was, you know, in my 30s. I thought, okay— Pro Tools has advanced to the point that I could actually buy a system, and Dane had just gotten some systems, and his wife, Francine, went to UT out here, and so she was interested in what would happen out here. (laughs) So I bought a system with (laughs) – Janice actually helped me buy it. She took her – some of her retirement money and her her pension, and we put $22,000 into it. What year was this? And this was 93. Okay. And moved out here. It was also because of our son who was three years old. We were looking at, you know, schools. And so um, it was a big deal. We moved here. (laughs) And (laughs) when the movers came with the equipment, I just set it up and started working cutting foley. Dane would send the the picture on a three-quarter inch tape. I would uh, program it and send back the sheets. FedEx them back to the Foley stage, the Foley artists. They would record it on usually like a, you know, 35 millimeter or multi-track. And uh, then Dane would take it over to his studio and transfer it on to Datadat backup tapes, those yep. little teeny little mm-hmm. tapes. And they would FedEx that to me. I would open the files and cut it. <laughs> <laughs> and when I was done, I would just send back through a phone modem the uh, Pro Tools file. So Pro Tools then only had four voices. Mm-hmm. So you could only, it was very primitive. This is Pro Tools like one, wasn't it? Oh, I think it was Pro Tools three. Three, yeah. yeah. I feel like <clears> I, start, <throat> I started in 99 and I was on Pro Tools 3.1 and we didn't have stereo tracks then. No, stereo tracks didn't come in until five maybe? Right, right. Yeah, so, I'm trying to picture Pro Tools in 93. Yes, well, it quickly just sort of evolved. You know, as with each year, Pro Tools would add more things. Yeah. 
and um, <clears throat> I evolve with it. You know, I, I was not. I was just an editor. So as the the mixing capabilities were mm-hmm. added, I added that to what I was able to do. But what, so for for a number of features, the first features that I did, or I was just doing, you know, working for Dane, and I remember, you know, Dane calling him up and saying, "Look, I'm going to send this file," and he would have to get on. Because it was just basically modem to modem mm-hmm. through a phone line. Was it? So it, was it like when you had to like put the phone, yeah, like the handset yeah. on a device right. that would make noises mm-hmm. into the device, right. and then right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was just the session file because he that already was had just the, the session audio. file. So there was no like adding, yeah, an audio suite file. I think no. I don't think Pro Tools had that then. So um, yeah, you could only move it on the timeline. Right, that's all you which, could do. which was very similar to the way we worked with um, Thirty Five because mm-hmm. I was yeah. using a Moviola, and all we were doing was just cutting out pieces of film and just arranging it so that it was in mm-hmm. sync. You know, it, so so moving to Pro Tools with four voices was not really that much different. Mm-hmm. It's then when we started adding volume and mm-hmm. EQ, and and then it, man, things yeah. took off. So that was 93 that you moved back right. to Austin. Mm-hmm. And 95 is when Before Sunrise came out. Right? right. So the— It must have been pretty soon after you moved back that you started working on that. Well, within the first year there, we moved in September, I was—got involved with the filmmakers here. The first one was um, Kim Hinkle. He was directing his Chainsaw 4 mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. and um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. This is the one with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Renee, Renee Zellweger. Zellweger. Yes, mm-hmm. and um, they were getting, they had finished cutting it, and they were looking at doing their sound. And they decided that they, well, first of all, they were, they asked Rick, Richard mm-hmm. Linkletter. Mm-hmm. They asked him because Rick had just finished uh, Days of Confused, and they'd mixed it at Universal in L.A. So uh, he, they were just getting some info. They said, "Where should we? What? Sh- how should we do the sound?" And uh, Rick said, well, talk to uh, Trisha, my sister. She's over at Dane Tracks. Well, I knew Trisha <laughs> from Dane Tracks. I'd been there many years. She sort of came in at the end. But uh, she turned around and said, hey, you know, Tom's out there in, in Austin. Why don't you see what he can do for you? So I immediately got to know, well, first of all, Sandra Dare, who is also Richard Linkletter's picture editor, mm-hmm. she was cutting – Chainsaw Chainsaw, four. okay. So, um, and she knew sort of all the people involved with Days of Confused and Chainsaw. And with Days of Confused, they had used Larry Sire to do some tent mixes. Temp- Larry was a, a music mixer. Okay. So here's a, another thing about Austin with all this music capability. Mm-hmm. Um, there was sort of a system set up to, to do mixing for film. So, um, and this ADAT system had just come out, which was a uh, very, it's a, <laughs> shall we explain? Yeah, you should, should explain. We should explain. Yeah, should explain. The, the ADAT, there were two ADAT systems. One was, the other one was a DA88, which is a smaller tape, but the ADAT was actually a VHS tape. <laughs> yep. Um, but it was a clever system, and you can still, you know, like the, the optical plugs, some of them are called ADAT plugs. Yep, so that's for sure. That's some of the legacy yeah. of this ADAT system. But you could link these decks together. And so they each had eight tracks. Right. Each had eight tracks. You could link them together, and they were all run by time code. Mm-hmm. So as long as you could get the audio onto the tape <laughs> <laughs> yep. and keep it running for a while, yeah. 
that's were notoriously finicky. Yeah, you could imagine it would all of a sudden it would just eat the tape, or Mm -hmm. it would start rolling, and you know this tape would be coming out the front of (laughs) them. So Very cartoon yeah. style. And then people yeah. start running down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> so with Larry's help, Stan Ginsel, who dealt with the tentacle part of it, we got a lot of those ADATs from Ray Benson, who's a in his studio, he's a musician here in town. And uh, and Wink Tyler, who had a, a studio at his house in South Austin. We decided we could do it, and we convinced Kim and Robert Kuhn, his producer, that we could do it here. And I'm like going. So, did you have a physical space at this time to do it in, or were you I had, doing it for for editing? For I anything. just I no, I just had <laughs> a loft in a house that we were renting okay. in South Austin. So, how did we do it? Yes. Well, I had the connection to Dane Tracks, so all the people there brought them in to help. So, the crew that I've been working with for many years took on cutting. Um, Dane did – Matthew McConaughey has this uh, leg, which all, makes all these hydraulic sounds, and Dane actually cut that. Dane actually ended up cutting the dialogue because we were having problems with – that was one thing that was done here, and it was done on, on a moviola, and it was just not working. So we actually took those tracks, gave it to Dane. He recut it, and uh, he actually told me – because things were pretty light then. He said he, said he was thinking of just sort of <laughs> – getting out of sound at the time because he was all, all real interested in photography. And he said, well, that's, that job sort of kept me going. Subsequently, Dane... Yes, Dane went on to... the Matrix. Yeah, and, right. Yeah, yeah so it changed uh, just about everything. <laughs> right, that right, right. Uh, many years later, after he had done The Matrix, he came out to visit us here in, in Austin and he and Francine and with their kids or his, his, his youngest at the time. And they could see there really wasn't much of a system set. It was basically just me and a couple other people. So um, he had made a good amount on the Matrix series. So he was able to build this wonderful studio that he had there in, in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So so I'm going to tell you a story about when I went to college. Mm-hmm. I went to film school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started in film school in 1995. Mm-hmm. So Pulp Fiction had come out the year before in 94, Mm -hmm. and before Sunrise came out, like, right as we were starting college. Right, And basically, at the end of that year, all of our first-year student films fell right down in line with one of those two films. Mm -hmm. And so, like, the the year (laughs) split in half between the people who wanted to make these uh, Richard Linkletter films and the people who wanted to make the Quentin Tarantino film. Now, I fell in the Linkletter side. But uh, it it was in really those two movies for my exact age and year going to film school were, like, the movies that we talked about. And I have a very clear memory. Rememory. I'm making up (laughs) words now. Very clear memory of after seeing the four sunrise going to a coffee shop with all my friends afterwards and we we shut the coffee shop down because we just talked about it what what's mm-hmm. this mean and like mm-hmm. and like that was a very uh seminal maybe movie for my personal uh film history and then since then i've been a huge richard linkletter fan mm-hmm. and uh like to talk to you about some of the things on how you worked on some of these films is really interesting to me because he his movies well, I guess a Scanner Darkly and uh, Waking Life are pretty kind of high-tech films mm-hmm. for what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of his films aren't, you know, shoot 'em up car chase right. scene movies. Right. But the sound has to set a mood in those movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm wondering how you went about finding the mood for each of his films. Mm-hmm. Like the first film, mm-hmm. uh, Before Sunrise, 
you know, it was the first time working with Rick. So we got an introduction to w- what his feelings were about things. And Rick is – he is all – first of all, it's – these are dialogue stories. Mm-hmm. And yes, the sound all needs to be there, but it needs to be very real. And one of the things that he didn't like was having sounds that weren't part of really what the story was or what was happening on the screen. So if there was a dog bark and there was no dog there, why is there a dog bark? You know, mm-hmm. we don't need that. So that was the first <laughs> clue. It seems like a challenge is your built-in backgrounds though, doesn't it? Yeah. So, But if you just think that way, okay, so here is a, a scene with a, on a street like Vienna – and there's lots of traffic and there's trolley cars and things. Those are all fine. So uh, let's try to make this thing as real as possible as if, as if we're walking down the street. And uh, trains. Trains are – I was telling you just about Plow. You know, his, one of his first films. He's on the train. Rick likes trains. Well, first of all, if you, go, if you look at Rick's films, they're all about time mm-hmm. and traveling. A lot of them have to do with traveling somewhere. So um, – the, the, the train, we want to make it very real. We want to see and hear. We want to hear what's related to what's happening outside. So when you're going down a, a bridge, you want to hear those big beams passing by. So there's little whooshes there. Mm-hmm. That also goes with his cars. You know, when, you, he's, when you're driving in a convertible like in Scanner Darkly, there's lots of stuff mm-hmm. moving by. So you want to have that shifting. And uh, – but – on the other hand, these are just sort of techniques that I just sort of established doing with his films. I mean, every film that I've done with his, there's always a scene like in a car. And what I do is I simply take some backgrounds and they're like various different types of ambiences and then just v- use volume graphing on it so that if there's a car by, it's like, or if, it, if it's like the car, the sound of the car is reflecting off of a building. Mm-hmm. So you just bring that sound up a little bit and, mm-hmm. and out. So the Foley is very important. And at first for Rick, and I'm a stickler about Foley. I am Foley needs to be right for me. But it is interesting that um, it is really in, only until the last couple of years that I understand really how to get good Foley. So tell us getting tell us in yeah. getting in sync is. First sync, of all, you, so important. If, if, if it's out of sync, you, it, it doesn't sell. You don't believe it. Right. Sync right, is just a thing. Right. Yes. So here I'm sort of getting off the subject. <laughs> we, we could talk about Foley. We're, we're, we're talking about what are the things that Rick For sure. likes yeah. about his films. Yeah. There, there are films – each of his films maybe has some interesting effect sequences. Yes, I wish sometimes that there were some bigger things and more interesting sound design things. But when it comes down to trying something new and different, he's very open to it. And I did try that. And, and I don't know – I know that there's a couple people who have made comments to me about it because they've heard it. But when you're listening to Waking Life, you'll notice in the background very faint some shifting tones. Okay. And these are major tones. These are minor tones. But it sort of fits with the dialogue that's happening there. You sort of have to turn it up to listen to it. And all that is, is just some winds that I added some notches to, to make the harmonics for that chord. So, and that's a technique that I've used in a number of other films and used it to sort of enhance the music to Graham Reynolds' 
music in Scanner Darkly, I use that to enhance some of the sequences or do transitions into mm-hmm. some of the sequences. Um, if Scanner Darkly is an interesting film for the 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 scramble suits, mm-hmm. where the uh, the characters had to be you you didn't know who was behind there. So you had to take their voice and change it so that you wouldn't know who the identity of that person was. So the audience doesn't know who it is until towards the end they take the suit off and they say, okay, they're one of the main characters that have... Well, that was an interesting uh, (laughs) challenge to do that. Um, You know, that took a number of weeks of experimentation. So it was the original actor the whole time? And you were disguising the original. Well, at first, voice. at first, I tried to process the voice. Okay. And and Rick was very quick to point out that, and it's true, that with this, because there's so much of the people in the scrambles that when they're these weird voices, and first of all, it's sort of hard to understand. Um, is it, the audience just isn't going to accept that? Anyway, this is sort of in the future. It should be a little bit more sophisticated yeah. than that. But I did try one thing that was interesting. Still, it was not something that you want to keep hearing over and over again. I took like uh, 25 people saying the same thing and then used vocal line to line it all up. And then I used a compressor to switch back and forth hmm. between those, all those voices in just frames. Mm-hmm. And it made this – rather than playing them all at once, yeah. they're like switching back and forth. And it sort of fit the image, the scrambled image. Yeah, that's way cool. And uh, but it was it was really cool, but it w- would have been the audience would have gone, oh God, here's this again. <laughs> so uh, we had just uh, brought in some other talent, and I processed their voice a little bit to make it sort of synthesized, and uh, and then it was a trick just trying to get the you know just matching the performance of Keanu Reeves, and if you haven't seen the film, I won't say who the other person is, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> Spoiler alert, not a <laughs> 17-year-old movie or what was that, 2006, something like that? Yeah, you're right. About then? Yeah. So, so, but fair. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there have been some interesting challenges. And I, Rick's latest film, which the critics, critics did not like very well. And, you know, have many people seen it? I don't know. But the sound in that is, is, is great. You know, it's a nice, nicely done. And the foley is great. Man. You know, this is where I've could start talking about Foley because yeah, I finally we can veer off into that. Although before we do, like when you're doing tricky sound designing things, mm-hmm. do you do you explain to the director kind of what's going on under the hood, or do you just let it play and see if if, if the director is going to accept it or not? For Rick, at this point, um, no. I still, if it's going to be a really tricky thing, I'll I'll still ask him here. You need here I, here like he'll come in. To look at a temp mix, and here I'll play this for him, and before going ahead and just doing the whole thing, right? But um, you know, no, we, I'm more talking about like when you when you said you had this technique where you would vocal line. A bunch oh, of all takes. of that. Yes, like, that was definitely working with going back. But, playing but the you're stuff spelling out what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. I, I went back and forth with him a couple times. He came in. Because there's right, two different trains of thoughts on that. One is like if you tell the story of how you got to the sound, sometimes that that pollutes the the viewer's mind of what the sound is because mm-hmm. they can they can see the magician behind you know mm-hmm. pulling the strings. Mm-hmm. Um, versus sometimes telling the story of how you got to the sound like helps sell the sound to the, to the director who right. has to right. eventually approve it. Right. right. We were both. I, mean, I was trying to, to do something interesting, but 
the reality is, is that he we were both of the same mind in terms of the audience. Yeah. You know, this is just too weird, but here it is. It sounds interesting. He says, yeah, it's interesting, but I don't think it's going to work. So, <laughs> so I, I would – what I probably did was just say, look, you know, let's just try processing the voice. So I did process the voice. Didn't do much of it, just a little bit um, with someone else's doing it. Mm-hmm. So – and we – in that case, I remember now we had a whole bunch of different uh, talent, and that was funny because we had some Texas um, accents, and uh, some of them were, were pretty pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into the Foley thing, uh, while we're talking about uh, some of the movies that you've worked on, I have a question about Boyhood. Mm-hmm. How the hell did you handle ADR in this movie? Like... Well, you, you had to have been doing it as you were going, right? Right. Well, Rick and Sandra knew where they had problems. And, uh, well, I guess well, maybe before we answer that, should yeah, we explain? Back up, I was going to say, yeah. explain why that's a relevant question to so, people who haven't seen the movie. Yeah, for people who aren't familiar with Boyhood, go watch it. But can you just explain why ADR would be an issue for Boyhood, okay, the process it, of the film? It was shot over 12 years. So every, about the same, well, I think, I think the scene, Scenes happen at different seasons, but Rick and his crew would shoot like a 10 or 20 minute, usually I think it was a 20 minute section of the story. And he had already, I think, written out most of it. He had an idea where it was going. But um, so this was, God, when did we? When, when uh, it, it came it, this out was in 2013, did it? Okay, so around 2001 is when he started So every year it. for 12 years, right. he shot about 20 minutes of right. the film. Right. So the characters physically age, uh, and the children go from children right. to young adults. Right. So Sandra would cut each of those sequences, so she knew where the problems were. And one of them was um, they're at Pardonellis Falls and swimming. And they, uh, Ethan Andrus was the production mixer. He couldn't get close to them with the mics. They were in their swimsuits and they were jumping into the water. So, um, yeah, as they said, we need to get that 80 yard. So Eller came in and I recorded him way back then. It was probably 2008 or seven yeah. that I recorded him because his voice, I remember his voice was changing. And we needed to get him before his voice changed. Yeah, exactly. So after that, subsequently, um, yes, we brought him in to do some things, but his voice had changed and had changed for those years that they were shooting, so there wasn't really a problem. Um, Lorelai, Rick's daughter, who was also in that, Mm -hmm. there were some later scenes that we needed to pick up on that. But um, there really wasn't a huge amount of ADR in that film. There was more group Mm-hmm. Material that we were, but you had to stay on it because we did. There's no going back. We did <laughs> twelve years we to did. get match the voice exactly. So there was definitely a level of organization and thought mm-hmm. put into it. You weren't just brought in, a, you know, when the right. picture was finished for right. cutting exactly. So when when you were working on the film, like sound technology changed in that, those mm-hmm. twelve years mm-hmm. massively. What, did it start as Niagara reels and end up as digital files? No, it was How? actually all digital. Well, um, okay. I think Ethan. If I remember, Ethan started recording on on DATS, and then he recorded on ADATS, <laughs> and then 
he had a, I think, an optical format that he was recording on. Mm-hmm. And then, because he would give us the audio on DVDs. And then it was just regular stuff. So, yes, it was over many different um, formats. ADAT was the big problem. But I had an ADAT deck that was working. So, <laughs> so one. yeah, the, the one. one. <laughs> and <laughs> and so, so we got it all set up with Pro Tools ready to record eight tracks and uh, put the tape in and then got Pro Tools recording, push play, and just hoped it didn't eat the tape. Did you know the scope of that project when you got started? Yeah, because when we started working on it, it was we had the whole basically the whole film there. So I like to imagine them showing up with the like a one of those office boxes that people get when they're fired, mm-hmm. just showing up with like every kind of possible recording media <laughs> in the world and just being like, good luck. <laughs> it, it was sort of like that, but <laughs> you know, at least there wasn't a Nagra. You know, there actually wasn't a Nagra involved. Yeah. So Yeah, it seems like in addition to like just the, the data and project management of that contracts. How do you sign contracts that are going to they're going to run that far out with like the actors and the production facilities that might or may, might not be around in the yeah, decade. I guess. Like that's Yeah, Rick will have to start talking to us about those things cuz he's working on this 20-year project. Oh my god. It's hyper ambitious just to So even, how old yeah. are we going to be? He's only shooting it once every 3 years. Yeah. Okay. So uh, but that'll be interesting. Yeah, on the other hand, flexible, it, I guess. Is the technology going to change again? Yeah, it's going is it really? Well, thirty two bit was massive. Like when thirty two bit came about, like I guess I mean it didn't really come about this year, but like once those those recorders hit, I mean that's a paradigm shift mm-hmm. in the field recording space. So who knows? Well, but it's a file. You know, it's a, yeah, it's a file it's, on a drive and that's yeah. the that's the big Yeah, bit. that's fair. Everything's gonna go to the cloud basically and your computers are not even gonna be in yeah. your office anymore. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So how did you and Richard meet originally? It was through that— Well, it was Sandra— The sister? After— Well, that direct link to Kim came from Trisha Linkletter. Okay. Who is now at—she works at at Technicolor. She's one of their directors of Post. The details of that— Okay, so so we we did— Chainsaw? uh, Kim Hinkle's film, and Sandra— would Sandra came and saw the mix. She would be there. She actually stopped by a number of times because she was the picture editor yeah. on that. And then we did a screening of the Paramount, and uh, she just <laughs> simply told Rick, she said, uh, you know what? We could do the sound for Before Sunrise here in Austin. So that's how it happened. You mentioned the Newton boys that you did the Foley mm-hmm. on but was mixed in L.A. Right. Now, that was a bigger film. Yes. That was a Fox picture. So how is he – you've done more of his films than you haven't, but there are, it does go back and forth a bit? That one was, is, is different than the others because um, it was a Fox picture. There was much more money involved, and the studio didn't want the, <laughs> the, the backwoods sound people working on it. They wanted to do it with the big boys, mm-hmm. and so it was mixed at Skywalker. Mm-hmm. But luckily, Rick and Ann Walker McBay, who was the um, his producer at the time, said, look, Tom can still do the Foley. And I actually ended up helping with the temp mixes, too, where um, you know they would do the temp mix there, and I'd fiddle with it and play it for Rick yeah. at, in, here in Austin. So when does Rick 
prefer to be working? Is it that he's wanting to work with you? Is he wanting to work in Austin? Is it both? Is it he doesn't want to work in L.A.? Can you put some words in his mouth? Every film is so different. <laughs> and sometimes I, you know, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to work on another film of his again. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, the bigger the film, the more complications there are. I think now that we are more established, that it's not such a as, – it's not as big a problem. But um, I've made it a lot easier for him. I mean, he's an amazing – person but he's he's only human i mean he's he's sometimes putting out a film a year now and uh i've made it easier for him to not have to deal with going back and forth to los angeles he can stay here work on the next project so and and he is he's told me that he's he said he says thanks so but um there are other times where uh school of rock that money was coming from New York, and they wanted to do the sound out of there. I helped a little bit with the yeah. temp mixing. Um, also, um, the Orson Welles film, that money was coming from the UK. So the, all the work was done out there. That's a broader thing that we deal with too. It's like you know, the money people have at, at least relationships or at least they're, they're reticent to send projects away from their production hubs, away mm -hmm. from New York and L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, even if you've proven – with your with your resume and your, and your track record that you know what you're doing, sometimes it's hard to overcome just your zip code, and, and we run into that as well. Um, how do you approach that? You just go with the flow, and you just do the best you can. Yeah. You know, every <laughs> Where'd You Go, Burning Dead is an example, an Annapurna film, and it was a union picture, and I know there was a bunch of conflict they wanted to do the finishing out there, the picture finishing. Rick, uh, Ginger Sledge, uh, Rick's producer, and Sandra all insisted that they do the audio here. It would just make their life so much easier. So I think that's how it happened, that we actually ended up here. Annapurna wanted the film to be printmastered there in Los Angeles. So, um, and it, so it worked out well. Trisha runs, is, the, is a director over there at Technicolor, so we mm -hmm. do the printmastering there. Mark Patterson helped us. Mm -hmm. So, um, whatever he, for sound, you just do the best you can. Yeah, do good um, work. And do, you do good work. It, you know, sometimes you're not going to be able to control everything. Sometimes that's okay. Yeah, that's so fair. You just have to accept it. So we're sitting in uh, Soundcrafter's main mix room mm -hmm. right now, and uh, when we look at your mix position, there isn't a big board full of faders there. Right. So you you like to mix with the mouse. Well. I was talking about going with how Pro Tools developed, you know, when they started mm -hmm. adding things. So I'm an editor starting out, and I think of myself still as an editor. <laughs> the mouse and the keyboard is what I'm used to. So, um, yes, I might use this. Yes, I could use a console. He points at a but, but <laughs> the console is just a big mouse anyway. Yep. So if you want to save some money... Yes, we'll probably get a big console someday. But right now, to save some money, um, we don't need it yet. Glenn Eanes, who is one of our crew members, he has an S3, and he brings that in mm -hmm. to work with. But uh, so and it's, it's what I, I was talking about, uh, where'd you go, Bernadette? Um, when we took the film to – I've oftentimes had to take the film different places. Uh, we would – so for some of Rick's films, we would do it locally here. 
Some of them went to uh, Larry Blake's stage at um, Swelltone Labs in New Orleans. Some of them have gone to a number of other stages in, uh, in Los Angeles. This time, I didn't want to go through this transition where they would take our template and reconfigure it because it would take days to reconfigure it. Mm-hmm. So uh, Mark Patterson was, was very gracious and worked with us to not do anything. He just took our template, took it to the stage there, basically just opened it up and did the work. There were some things we added to it, like brought up the foley a little bit. I was surprised that the Annaberta people were just talking about bringing up some backgrounds and some foley. So that is that, those were all the so – there were some other fixes, but it was mostly around that that line. Yeah. That's a good transition into Foley. Um, you know, you, you, you have thoughts on, on what yeah, makes Foley sell. Yes, yes. Okay, so when I uh, started working there um, out of CalArts, Dane and Greg Jacobs uh, called me up. I, had, I hadn't even finished school, and they said, hey, we're working on these, this low-budget horror film. Can you – we need some help. And uh, – so at first, you know, working as an assistant, but then I immediately – well, Dane decided, okay, he's going to move into his own place. So um, I actually helped him move equipment into his place that he had on – it was it was in the building with JDH Sound, which isn't there anymore. But uh, he had called it Dane Tracks, and mm-hmm. uh, it was mostly his office and a bunch of rooms that had movieolas in them. So I just started doing the foley and – I guess I was good at it, so I got. That's where I got stuck. <laughs> I got stuck doing foley. Now doing the foley as a as a performer, as a no, no, no as, as, a a supervisor, as a supervisor. I would um, back then. You know, the, the filmmaking process was much more complicated, so it would go on for sometimes months. So I would program the foley, <clears throat> go sit on the foley stage, supervise it, always tell the. When you artist. say program the Foley, what do you so mean? So just write out all the stuff on sheets. So, so it's like the footsteps the are going from here to here for this character. Yeah. Yeah. This prop is going from here to here. Yep. So um, on actual paper. Right? On actual paper. Yeah. Strips of paper. Yeah. So um, going to the stage and always saying, "Hey, we need it bigger, bigger footsteps." <laughs> I remember on uh, on uh, it was the. Bill and Ted's Bogus Adventure. No, Bogus Journey. Bogus Journey. Yes. Well, there was the second one. <laughs> yeah, the second one. Second one. Bogus. Big Adventure was the first one. Bogus Journey. Is bogus the Journey. Okay. Don't mess with me with my Bill and Ted. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the name thing I was telling you about. <laughs> so, so uh, why can't we get these footsteps bigger? We need them bigger, you know. So we try all these different things. We try to make, uh, you know, we try to process it with, you know, with hardware and, but. Little did we know. I mean, here it is now. <laughs> it's so simple to get it bigger. Why didn't these Foley recordists know all of this? The you're, you're looking at me yeah. like, oh, what it is. All you need is just a room mic. Yes. Just, you know, when you record some footsteps, you're not, you, you, when, you, when you hear a footstep, you don't have the mic down on the floor. Mm-hmm. Put it back, and then the body of that, footstep can be there and it certainly goes with hand pats and things like that because it's very tappy when you get close to the mic because the high frequencies just Mm -hmm, push mm -hmm. through so uh, it's a combination of those two microphones yeah 
So you always cut with two mics. You cut it Yeah, now we always cut with two mics. Yeah. In fact, I could even do more. And you like 416 and TLM 103? Um, we're, we're using the Sennheisers, the 416. Yeah. Yes, and that. And the TLM 103 is the Also, mic. we use the, the Sheps there. The Sheps, Sheps cement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is on my voice because yes. I need the, the extra frequencies. Yes, yes, we <laughs> thought that would be important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for the new movie, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, uh, the last half hour or so takes place in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Did you commit to this film and go to the Antarctic and record ambiences yourself? Justin Hennard, who is our one of our crew members, has done the um, sound design on, on most of our later films. Richard Linklater films, and he contacted a field recordist who had been there to Antarctica. He sold us a whole bunch of his oh, sounds. Nice. nice. Yeah. The penguins came from actually, I think, New Mark, Zoo. Mark Mangini's recordings of oh. Mr. Popper's, Popper's pen- penguins. Because we needed like a Gentoo, what is the name of the penguin, the Gentoo penguin, which is— The one uh, with the eyebrows? Well, it has a no, certain that's... type of sound to it. And uh, those penguins, actually, I don't think there are, well, I don't know where, but a lot of the shooting for the film was in Greenland. Yeah. The Antarctic pictures were just sort of play shots Mm -hmm. that the cinematographer went and picked up. Those sequences, a lot of them are combined shots. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of uh, CGI in that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a scene with Billy Crudup and uh, the daughter. On the The father and daughter. And... uh, well, no, they were actually sitting on the rocks. Penguins. In the that was actually shot in a studio. Mm-hmm. But um, they were using shots from Antarctica there. So, this, yes, those penguins came from Antarctica. <laughs> nice. So I, I don't know <laughs> the, the details of all of that. <laughs> but, but we got it to work with those backgrounds. Yeah. So uh, I've been talking to some of your crew. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have told me that you are a perfectionist. In a positive way. That mm-hmm. word can sometimes be a negative, but uh, and that you have a unique system of giving feedback to them after you've mixed with post-it notes. Can you explain that to me? <laughs> um, I also in my phone have pages of notes, like when I'm working or mixing an editor's work, I'll like write down For some sure. some suggestions and then <laughs> feed that to them. Some of them I haven't talked to them about in years. But uh, yes, I mean, when you're mixing something and, you know, you know, okay, this could have been done better. Yes, I'll, I'll tell them. And I think that helps. Doesn't that help? Definitely help. I mean, yeah. yeah. If you want to get better, you need people that are evaluating your work and mm-hmm. feedback, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I think is getting lost a bit because as we were mentioning earlier, a lot of times in mixes – people aren't even there anymore. Yep. And they've moved on to a different project and you have no idea if your edit worked well or not. Right. And it's, uh, I think it's something that we should, as a industry, tr- try and continue doing more is mm-hmm. getting that feedback loop happening mm-hmm. because that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's an important, you were talking about groups. That's an important thing we have here as a group um, when we can share our feelings about other other people's works. And we all sort of know where we stand. Um, some of us are much better than others in terms of cutting or mixing. You know, there are certain things that I'm just not as, as good. You know, Wayne Bell, who's one of our crew members, he's an incredible dialogue editor, um, very fastidious with detail and getting the EQ just right. Um, yes, I am too, but not, not quite 
as much as he is. Are you structured with how you give that feedback? Is it like as soon as, soon as you complete something, you, 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 you give this over there and then you give feedback back down the line? Or I'll tell them immediately yeah. or the next day or when I remember. I don't think, you know, on, on Bernadette, we've been working, this crew has been working for here for so many years that uh, I don't really, haven't really given them, them many comments that I remember recently. So it's working. I guess it's working. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, and what, like, how, how do you approach it? Do you, is, it, is, it is it verbal? Are you writing things down? Or, or Well, it's coming from my notes. Yes, yes. Because I'm very particular about footsteps. You know, at first I would tell them, look, we need to get this better. And I'll show them, this is what I did. I lined this up here. You can hear the production there. It's there. Just line that footstep to other production, then you won't hear it doubling. Mm -hmm. So um, other times if I'm mixing it, I'll just move them. Sometimes I'll just move them and it's fine. I'm not going to even tell them. It's just sometimes, you know, when I'm doing work, sometimes I'll miss stuff. On the other hand, you also have to look at the bigger picture. How important is that to the film to get that perfect? Well, sometimes it may not be important to the film, but it may be important to me because mm-hmm. I'll just think about it. Mm-hmm. It's like I wanted to get that fixed, and I always regret not fixing it. And every time I see the film, which is not that often, but there's that problem that I should have fixed. Mm-hmm. So and That goes back to your days as a, as a, as a Foley supervisor then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Always thinking about the Foley from those like Drugstore Cowboy, which is an interesting sound design film. But the Foley is just, oh, man, it's just bad. It's just <laughs> <laughs> so what makes Foley bad in your eyes? Like, what, well, what that, that was – it was not a big budget film and the mixers didn't have a huge amount of time. You know, they're, they're moving fast. Mm-hmm. So they aren't adding the reverb that it needs. And, of course, they're dealing with Foley that wasn't recorded as well as we can do now. Yeah. You know, it just stuck out as being Foley. And I think a lot of filmmakers are used to that now. Mm-hmm. You know, Rick, here, here we are working on Bernadette, and Rick is saying, bring the Foley in more because it works. It sounds mm-hmm. real. So, so it's all those techniques, the, the two mics, the, getting the reverb right, um, the cutting of it, being able to match the wood footsteps and the character of the wood into the production so when the characters are walking through the house, you're hearing some of the production, and then it shifts over to the foley, but it's seamless. How do you get that? Okay, that, you know, there's a lot of EQ involved. Mm-hmm. The, just the reverb, just trying to get that. It's experience. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. And, and you, have, you have a nice front end as far as, like, more than just the mic, your, your pre's and, and, and the rest of your input path mm-hmm. for the foley is, mm-hmm. is kind of specific to that right. task. Right, and, and here we have great people helping with the Foley. First of all, Susan Fitzsimon, who is our Foley artist here and moved to Austin in about Scanner Darkly time, which is 2007, 2006. And then um, Glenn Eanes. He has uh, been doing the, um, the recording of the Foley on a couple of the last films. We all do various jobs here. It's not like, okay, here. Yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> Glenn is mixing all these television shows that we, that's another story that we're doing. He's doing the Foley, he's supervising other projects. You know, he's got the technique down with the two mics. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all of us working together to perfect that. Because Su- Susan is, is so important to um, 
the Foley. Without her, it wouldn't happen. You know, if you can build a Foley stage, but unless you have a good Foley artist. Yep. And she, you know, we, we can't keep her working as a Foley artist all year. So she's editing and mixing, but she's also having to go back to Los Angeles to record Foley there mm-hmm. too. And what we find is that there's, besides Rick's films, yes, we have, we do Foley for films here and there, um, but it's not a full Foley job. It's not a foreign mix because these lo- lower budget films just don't have mm-hmm. the money to go mm-hmm. to a full foreign mix. One other thing that that you kind of brought up right then, and it's something that we experienced as well. That's that's unique from the LA system is that we do have to wear multiple hats, mm-hmm. and so as we go about the tasks of editing and mixing, that can help inform the way that we do things like record fully and and even you know spot you know what needs to go down and all of that. Right. I've definitely found that well. I've. I've I feel very grateful, actually, that I get to wear multiple hats and have the different things, the different disciplines inform one another mm-hmm. um, within the context of a team. Right, right, right. Yeah. Other times it's it's a little hard, <laughs> <laughs> especially when first moving here. You know, you're dealing with uh, transferring onto an ADAT at the same time that you're you're not getting much sleep. Yeah. For for weeks on end. Um, it's much easier now. It's great to have a crew. It's great to have a facility like this. Um, there are still things that I'm doing, which I'm happy to finally be through, which is getting the design of this place done. So there are things that I'm having to do. Um, one of our acoustic technicians here, well, our only acoustic technician here in town, passed away last year in a tragic accident, Mark Genfin. And he would come in here and and calibrate the speakers. Well, I sort of knew how to do that, but I really relied on him. This room was calibrated by Dolby, Mm -hmm. but all these other rooms that we have, Mm -hmm. you know, Mark would do. Mark Mark was the guy locally that that kind of designed and erected a lot of the facilities in this part of the world. Hmm. So I'm doing that now, and I'm getting better at it. Um, it's so important to have that, like even that little room there, match uh-huh. this larger room. What is your favorite Linkletter film, either from the work you put into it or just from watching it? From watching it, I think um, when I start working on a film, I have to rely on that first moment when you watch it because uh-huh. then you become so jaded about <laughs> what it is. <laughs> and uh, You're not the first to know, tell us that. Yeah, well, Boyhood was interesting because actually you were talking about us starting – on that film, we started working on the reel one and then reel two. Sandra hadn't finished actually cutting the later reels or tweaking it, so we didn't get the whole thing. But um, Before Sunset, the second of the Before series, made a huge impression on me. I remember going over to uh, Sandra's editing room and watching that. It's like, wow, this emotionally affected me. And uh, so I held on to that. You have to hold on to those moments where you're working on the film. Whereas films like um, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, I don't know what happened to that film. That film went through 13 temp mixes, and it started out very long, almost three hours. And I liked it. I actually liked it. I liked it better than the shorter version. But everyone would say at the test screenings, they said it was too long. So Anna Perna kept forcing Rick and Sandra and Ginger to keep cutting it down, cutting it down. And, and uh, I'd be happy to help 
Rick, if you wanted to, to <laughs> do a director's cut. Because we yeah. actually did the Foley for the longer version. Mm-hmm. We did – the film is, a, is about a character that not many – you know, that the audience doesn't like her mm-hmm. as much. And, the, and I think what's missing are some of those scenes where you, you feel sorry for her. So Interesting. It's an interesting film because it's normally uh, – it didn't it, – it wasn't panned by critics, but it wasn't uh, adored by critics. Yeah. But the audience scores, when you look at like Rotten Tomatoes or uh, IMDb, they're quite a bit higher, mm-hmm. which yeah. normally that happens for like a horror film or some kind of action film. The critics are like whatever, but uh, in those genre type films, the, the audiences still love it. For a film of of its type, to that's very rare for the critics to think it's a lower score than the mm-hmm. audience because the audience right. quite liked it. Everyone right. did take the time mm-hmm. to go see it mm-hmm. was a fan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for talking to us and letting us in your studio today. This is a wonderful place to hang out and talk to you. Well, thank you very much. Hey, everybody. This is Tim. Thanks for listening to that episode. I want to send a big thanks out to Chris Zott for editing this episode. Chris is a Foley artist and owner of Little Hook Sound, a Foley stage in the heart of the Canadian prairies. His social media handles for everything are at Chris Zott. That's Chris, S-Z-O-T-T. Chris is the only person who sent Tonebenders a holiday greeting card this past year, and it was a really funny one. So thanks for helping us out, Chris, and thanks for that Christmas card. This episode with Tom was a really fun one to record because Renee and I met for the first time in person about eight minutes before we started recording that episode. So it was really cool to finally meet Renee, to hang out with Tom, who's one of my kind of sound heroes unto himself. Uh, It was a super fun day that day. So stay tuned for more episodes from the trip Renee and I took to Austin. We interviewed some really great people while we were there, and we'll be sending those episodes out over the next few months. Austin is one of my favorite places in the world. I loved it there. We got some great stuff coming for you. Have a great day. Tumbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 